Our scripture passage today that we'll be hearing from God on is Matthew 10, 34. Matthew 10, 34 through 39, which is different than what your bulletin says. I couldn't get all the way to verse 42. And part of that is because in the pastor's conference this week, Dr. Price, who has preached from this pulpit many times, said that I should be memorizing the scripture that I'm preaching. So I just shortened the passage. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are on page 815, if you're following along in your pew Bible. Page 815, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. The real reason I shortened it is because this is a crucial passage, and I want us to get it. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, says this to us. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are the words of our Savior. You may be seated. Father in heaven, I I, I confess this morning, as we begin to look at your word, that my heart resists your word. And God, I know that's true for many of us in here this morning. We approach a text like this, And we either think that this is just not true or that it's hyperbole. Surely Jesus doesn't mean these things. But Father, you have not had these things recorded for us for no reason. I pray that as we hear from you today that, that you would give us understanding, that you would soften our hearts, And that we would have a joy in Christ far above any other joy in this entire life. So obedience to these things would be simple. My sister in Christ's name, amen. Well, at the end of this Gospel of Matthew that we've been studying, you probably are familiar with what comes. Jesus is going to commission his disciples in Matthew 28 for what will be a lifetime of making disciples wherever they go. And when Jesus does that, he's going to tell them this. I'll put this on the screen for you if it's available. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then don't miss this. He says, Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's what disciple-making is. Teaching what Jesus taught. That's the, the forever until Jesus comes mission of those who follow Christ. 
Well, that's at the end of the gospel, and we'll get there. But something I want us to understand is what we're doing right now is learning Jesus' teaching. So these things that Jesus is teaching, the, the, the things he taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, and the things he's been teaching us these last few weeks, listen, these are the all that I have commanded you things. These are the things that we are to teach others. These are the teachings that you and I are called to observe. So I want to give us this as a disclaimer so we don't even begin to think that what we're studying today is optional. Like this is only for super Christians or something. What Jesus is teaching us in this passage this morning, this is Christianity. This is the continuance of the message of the kingdom. So if you, if you reject Jesus' teaching here, and you say that's too extreme, that's too harsh, what you're doing is rejecting the very commands of Christ. And those who reject Jesus' instruction are not his disciples. They're not his followers. John 3.36 Jesus tells us in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, and by obedience we mean observe these commandments, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But here's the thing, and that sounds weighty, here's the thing that we're going to learn as we continue in Matthew's gospel. This is why we preach the whole gospel. Jesus' commands are not burdensome. They seem weighty. They seem outrageous at first sight. You're looking at our text this morning and you say, that looks burdensome to me. You say, that seems outrageous. They seem that way. But as you get to know Jesus, you find that his commands are actually freeing. You find that what Jesus teaches is a source of great joy. Because your obedience flows from your love for him. And I hope you see that today. Because if you don't get that, if you don't get that, then, then, then we're going to approach this text this morning in one of two ways. And they're both wrong. One is we can, we can take a text like this and we downplay it. We gloss over it, we explain it away, we ignore it altogether. In which case, what are we doing? We're, we're minimizing the very words of Jesus Christ and the commands of our Lord. And then, and then we're deluding ourselves as to what it means to follow him. Because this is what it means to follow him. And, and when, when, we, when we explain away the commands of our Savior and we misunderstand or lie to ourselves about what it means to follow him, the danger is that we live in, in a false assurance. We will go about our days believing that we belong to Jesus Christ when in fact we only belong to some non-Christian imaginary version of Jesus Christ. That's error number one. Error number two. The other error in approaching this text is that we would believe that we are somehow made righteous through our obedience to Jesus. Through, through, through obedience to what Jesus is saying, rather than through Jesus himself. 
In which case, we would overemphasize this teaching and these commands. And then we would use these commands as a bludgeon to drive you to guilt. We don't want to do either of those two things as Christians. Both are grievous errors that will lead people away from the true Christ as he's revealed himself to us in Scripture. What we want to do this morning as we study these words from Jesus, what we want to do is understand what he's calling us to in light of what he has accomplished. So so here's what you're going to find in this text this morning. And simply this, Jesus Christ is to be our greatest love. That's the main point. You read verses 34 through 39, you will find Jesus Christ is to be our greatest love. Now remember the context of this passage that Jesus is preparing his disciples for their mission. He's he's sending them out to, to preach the coming of the kingdom of heaven, but they're commissioning, if you remember from last week, that that sending wasn't just for the immediate. He's, he's getting them ready for the rest of their lives. They don't know it yet, but he's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to resurrect. He'll spend a little more time with them, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. And they don't know that yet, but he's preparing them right now for that day. And when we read this, what we're finding as Christians today is in the same way that he was preparing those disciples for the rest of their lives following Christ, he's preparing us for the rest of our lives following him. Well, it's in that context Jesus gives this instruction. Look with me at verse 34, our first verse this morning. Jesus says, Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does he mean by that? I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Are are, are his disciples supposed to take up arms? They're not, are they? We know that. When Jesus, on the day he was to be crucified, he's being questioned by Pilate. Listen to what Jesus tells Pilate. John 18, 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus hasn't literally brought a sword, at least not yet. When you see him on a white horse, you'll see the sword. The disciples here in verse 34, they're not being commissioned to kill. Don't misunderstand that. In fact, they're going to be taking up crosses, aren't they? We see that in the same text. They're going to be giving up their lives. So what does Jesus mean when he says he doesn't bring peace but a sword. Well, remember, if you've been with us as we studied Isaiah or Matthew, remember how so much of what Jesus has been showing us, what Matthew's been showing us about Jesus, remember how a lot of that is rooted in the, in the prophet Isaiah, in those, in those teachings from Isaiah? Think about how at Christmas time we often read Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. People knew 
full well. This prophecy was talking about the coming Messiah. There's no doubt. But before Jesus, the Messiah, can bring that peace, before there can be this true and lasting peace, sin has to be dealt with. Peace with God must first be established. And that peace comes at the blood of the cross. Point is, though, the peace that the disciples may have been expecting is so, so wildly different than what Jesus is bringing that Jesus has to jolt their expectations with the strong language. I've not come to bring peace. Come with a sword. The sword imagery comes from Exodus. You're reading, if you're wondering why we had Josh read the entire chapter of Exodus 32, this is why. You might have picked up on some of the similarities to what's happening here in Matthew. Think about it. Moses, God's appointed leader, has come down from meeting with God on Mount Sinai. When he arrives at the camp, he finds that God's people have created for themselves an idol. Moses approached the people and asks this Don't miss this question because it's really, really relevant to our text. You remember what Moses asked? He approaches the people and he says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Who is on the Lord's side? This is one of those crisis moments. This is a choose this day who you will serve moment. Moses is confronting the people and he's saying, Who's going to be loyal to the true God? Who's for the Lord? I need to know because I'm about to ask you to do something that you're not going to want to do unless you really and truly are for the Lord. Well, the Levites step up, don't they? They step forward. This is what God says through Moses. Every man fasten his sword to his side. Then they're commanded to go into the camp and bring God's judgment on his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. Jesus is echoing that. In verse 35, Jesus says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You see the parallel? Don't, Don't miss the drama here. Jesus, the subject, sets, that's your verb, a man. That's your object. Against the father, against the mother, against the mother-in-law. These are the prepositional phrases. Grammar is really important when you read the Bible. They're, they're adverbial. They describe how Jesus sets people against others. Who's doing the action? Jesus. Jesus is doing the action. This isn't accidental. This is deliberate. There is a real intentionality here. Jesus is very conscious of what he's demanding of his disciples, of those who, like Moses, ordained the Levites. Jesus is ordaining his disciples for this mission. This is very similar to what Moses was doing. Moses was sending the Levites into the camp. He was at God's command, intentionally setting these men against their own families. And what are they carrying? Just to chop, top it all off. Swords. When Moses commissioned the Levites to go into the camp, he was not sending them on a peacekeeping mission. 
who is sending them with a sword. That's what Jesus is referring to here when he says, He comes not to bring peace, but the sword. The apostles are not going to take a sword into their homes or anybody else's homes. We know that. In fact, the one time a disciple draws a sword to defend Jesus, no less, what happens? Jesus rebukes him. The spread of the gospel is not a mission of physical violence. But when you say, like the Levites, I am on the Lord's side, when you say, I am with Jesus Christ, the divide that that loyalty brings is going to be so sharp, it's going to feel like violence. The the division between family members over this issue of following Christ is going to be so sharp, it's going to feel like you're killing them. To follow Christ instead of showing loyalty to a family member, it's going to feel like you hate them. It's going to feel like you hate your family. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus says this very thing. Luke records Jesus' words this way. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's strong language, isn't it? What Jesus is doing here is he's describing what your heart is going to feel like when you, when you have to make that choice to follow Christ instead of a family member. To honor Christ instead of a family member. It's going to feel like you're killing them. Following Jesus is going to force you into situations where your loyalties will come into harsh, real, vivid conflict. And what's going on when you feel that conflict is that there is a tear in your heart between two loves. Look at verse 37 of our text this morning, Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When it feels like you're hating or killing a loved one because you love Christ and you're following Christ... Two desires, two affections have come into conflict with one another. Two loves. If you're married, I know you've probably experienced this before. Your love for your spouse has come into conflict with your love for your parents. You love your spouse, but you also love your parents. And somehow or another, those two loves have come into conflict. And the love is so great... And the conflict is so great that when you choose one over the other, you feel like you're you're being forced to hate the other. You feel like you're killing them. And they feel that way too. Have you experienced that before? That's what Jesus is getting at. If you're in Christ, your love for him is going to come into that same type of conflict with your other relationships, with the love you feel towards others. Jesus is saying in verse 37, when that happens, your love for Christ must win out. If you're truly in Christ, if you're truly following Christ, when those loves come into conflict, the love for Christ wins out. These, these dilemmas come in 
lots of ways, some really obvious ways. Many of you, I know, are reflecting right now on some time in your life when you've had to do that. And maybe you chose Christ, maybe you chose family. These come in really obvious ways, in little subtle ways, and they come in big, life-altering, relationship-changing ways, don't they? For some families, the decision simply to follow Christ at all will be a dividing line. To, to abandon the religion or the traditions of the family in order to be baptized into Jesus Christ will divide you and your family. If your family is Jewish or Roman Catholic or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness and you are born again into Jesus Christ, your family is not going to rejoice with you. They're going to feel like you're killing them. They're going to feel like you're abandoning the traditions of your your ancestors. They're going to tell you grandma's rolling in her grave. Or more common... I think this is much more common. Think about an extended family. This is just uh, uh, something I've seen over and over again. Think about an extended family who always does birthday parties on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. It's just their tradition. You don't know why. You don't know when it started. And really, it's not unusual. right? Sunday mornings are free and open for the majority, the vast majority of Americans. Sunday mornings are just a, another weekend day. Most people see no issue with birthday parties on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. So if this is your kids who are doing this, or your grandkids who have this tradition, or if it's your parents or your siblings, do you say this? Do you say, I'll come to the party later because I worship my Lord and Savior, and I hear from Him on Sundays? Or do you choose instead to go to the birthday party? And skip one of the most visible ways we have to show our love for Christ together. When when you choose to neglect this time of of gathered worship, what are you doing? You're choosing one love, the temporal, the earthly, the love of family, over your love for Christ. Seems inconsequential. We're kind of used to it. We've kind of grown numb to this one. But if you really examine your heart, what's happening there? Choosing one love over the other. More stark for for some of us are those once-in-a-lifetime events, not just birthday parties. Think about something much bigger. Think about weddings. If you have a son or daughter who professes faith in Christ, but then wants to marry someone who's not a Christian, what do you do? What do you do? You you want to love and support your child, but but you don't want to affirm a union that is in defiance of God's good and right and holy plan for marriage. So what do you do? Do you go to the wedding? You're being forced to choose between two loves, aren't you? Very relevant in our day. If you have a son or daughter who wants to marry someone of the same sex, You're forced into the same dilemma, aren't you? Do I love and support my child in this? If I don't go to that wedding, wedding, if I don't go and celebrate this day with them, they may never speak to me again. Do I go? Or do I show loyalty to my Savior and His good design for marriage? 
Christian families, you have to deal with, with, with these other similar dilemmas. What if your adult child decides she wants to be a missionary in a difficult place, somewhere dangerous? Just think of the most dangerous place you can. That's where they want to go. Do you, do you support her in this? Knowing at worst that her life is in danger and at least knowing that you won't see her as much as you hoped. You, you probably won't get to see your grandkids. You'll miss out on birthday parties. You, you won't see them take their first steps. You won't spend Christmas with them. You won't hear those grandbabies say your name for the first time. You encourage you encourage your child to follow God's call on her life to take the gospel to people who have never heard it. You do it? Because that's what loving Jesus looks like. That's what valuing him, cherishing him more than your own children looks like. These are just a handful that I could think of this week. There are hundreds and hundreds of ways that many of you have had to make much greater, more consequential choices even than these. You've had to ask, will I love Christ more? Is my desire for Christ greater? Do I cherish Christ more? Do I love my family more? Sometimes you can do both and there's no conflict at all. And I pray for more of those times for you and for me. But sometimes you can't. It's unavoidable. There's conflict. Jesus goes on in verse 38 and says, it's not just love of family though. It's not just love of family that will come into conflict with your love for him. Look at verse 38. It's also the love of yourself. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. When he says take up your cross, that's not just carrying a burden. That means die. That means to die. To take up your cross means you are carrying the very instrument that will be used in your death. And you are marching straight away in that direction. You're willfully walking with that beam on your shoulders towards your death. Jesus says to follow means, follow me means to do this, to carry your cross. Because that's the Christian life. You're not just denying family when you follow Christ. You're denying self. You're dying to yourself. Following Christ means there will be a daily choice to love yourself or to die to yourself and to love Christ. Daily. That's your choice. Love yourself or Jesus. Live for yourself, live to promote yourself in hopes of bettering yourself, or live as Christ's representative, promoting Christ, glorifying Christ, loving Christ, proclaiming Christ with no regard to yourself. That's the dilemma that Jesus is giving us. I think this one's particularly hard for us. If, if, the, if the choice between family and Jesus is hard for most traditional cultures, and believe me, it's harder than we can even imagine. The choice between the self and Jesus is particularly hard for Western, advanced, individualistic cultures. Just think of some of the new words that have been added to our language just in this generation maybe the last two generations. Self-realization. Self-actualization. Self, there's a new one. Self-care. 
self-love, self-empowerment, self-esteem, selfie. Right? We'd expect this in a culture where Oprah is the chief priestess of our religion. But this is where we need to be particularly careful as Christians. Because we recognize when the world is being the world. And we can just stand here and throw stones at the world all day long. But we're not going to do that. Here's where we need to be careful. This self-first issue isn't just an issue in the broader culture. It's a major issue for self-proclaimed Christians. I think it's particularly books that are targeted at women are notorious. Christian books targeted at Christian women are notorious for preaching the self-first false gospel. So women, be on guard. Husbands, guard your wives. Don't just assume that a book that came from a Christian bookstore is nourishing to your wife's soul. Read it. And when you see false teaching, when you see something like what Paula White says, here's our president's spiritual advisor. This This is the Christian who gave the inaugural prayer for a president. This is what she says. Love yourself enough to leave anything that always makes you feel less in life. Love yourself enough to leave anything that always makes you feel less in life. That's, that's, the, that's the, the message going to Christian women every day. What does Jesus say, though? Jesus says, if you choose the self over him, you aren't worthy of him. If you will not take up your cross and march away from yourself and toward Jesus, you aren't worthy of him. What what does he mean by worthy of him? A lot of definitions we have to do in this text today, isn't it? He used that same language regarding family. Remember, if you love father or mother more than me, you aren't worthy of me. Is Jesus saying, if I die to myself, then I become worthy of Jesus? I earn Jesus? If I, if I forsake my family, then I deserve Jesus? I become worthy of Jesus? Is that what he's saying? No, shake your heads this way. No, that's not the gospel. Right? You don't do something and become worthy of Jesus. You can't do anything to become worthy of Jesus. Christ died for us while we were sinners. Christ came for us while we were his enemies. We weren't worthy. We were given new life when we were dead in our trespasses. There's nothing we can do that makes us worthy of Jesus. Jesus affirmed this for us just a couple chapters ago. Remember in Matthew chapter 8, this this centurion approaches Jesus and he begs him to heal his servant. And Jesus said, I'll come to your house right away. And the centurion stopped Jesus right there in his tracks and he said, Matthew 8, 8, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I just say the word. Say the word. And then did Jesus say, well, centurion, you can be worthy. If you will forsake your family and yourself, then you'll be worthy of me. No. 
It's not, it's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, no one in Israel has this man's faith. Jesus commended the man because he recognized Jesus' greatness and his own unworthiness. There isn't something we do to earn or to be deserving of Christ. So what, is, what does Jesus mean then? What does he mean when he says to love self or family more than him is to not be worthy of him? Here's the, the big truth. This is what brings it all together. Right? This is what I want you to see this morning. Your worth is in Christ. Your worth is in Christ. Your value before God is in Jesus Christ. When you love something that is worth less than Christ, more than you love Christ, you are ascribing to yourself a value that is less than Christ. You are saying, my happiness, my joy, my life is worth this much. My, my, my life is worth my job. My life is worth this family member. My life is worth whatever I am valuing, whatever I'm sacrificing for. But God declared that your worth is in Jesus Christ. When he sent his own son to die for you, that's what God was saying. Your worth is in Jesus Christ. You've been purchased at the cost of Jesus Christ. Thinking of, think about what we've been singing together these last few weeks. I've loved singing this song with you and learning it with you. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. Have you, have you not just been getting chills when you sing that? So then to say... Your life is worth anything else but Jesus Christ? It's to lower the value of your life. If you're having trouble tracking, let's look at this mathematically. Math always makes things easier. So let's put a number on it. (laughs) So you might find joy being with your family. Let's say the joy you get from a hug from your kids is worth 10,000 joy points. All right? At least mine are. Yours are probably 9,000. All right? So when, when your kids say, I love you, it's worth 3,000. Right? I love you 3,000. All right? Avengers fans? Okay. Yeah. Thanksgiving with family is worth, let's say, 5,000 for some, negative 50 for others. All right? <laughs> your job is worth 1,000 points. The job you want is worth 2,000 points. A vacation is worth 500 points. A new car, let's say 200 your dream home, 700. Having enough savings to retire, 7,000. Right? All right so, so I, I know MasterCard would say all those things are priceless, but really, even if you can't put a dollar number to it, based on the way that you prioritize your life, we are ascribing value to those things. We're ascribing a joy value to them, a reward value of some sort. Whenever you choose to do one thing instead of something else, you're saying that thing is worth more. Right? Do you you see see where we're going with this? You're giving it a greater joy value. So imagine you could add up all those things. All the things that you're willing to prioritize and sacrifice for. Right now, if you've been counting, we're up to 27,400 points for me, 26,000 for you. Right? That's where we're at. If we're just adding up our list... 
That's where we are, 27,400 points. If you add up your life this way, you need to know this. You can never get to Jesus with those numbers. We sang it today. You can have the whole world. Every sweet moment, every cherished moment, your kids could love you, they could adore you, your parents could love you, your siblings and co-workers could absolutely adore you, and you could give everything for all those people. Add to that the perfect, most rewarding career. Add to that the most beautiful and wonderful spouse. I mean, everything. The intangibles. If you got everything you ever wanted, plus the American dream, if all of that was added up together in joy points, there'd be like a billion joy points that still would not be equal to what worth God has ascribed you in Jesus. That's nothing compared to what you have in Jesus. All, all of your worthiness for Christ is in Christ. Your value is in Him. When you say or live, or live as if your value is in anything else, in anything else, you're finding your worth outside of Christ. And so, you're not worthy of Christ. That's why Jesus can say in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you're looking to find your life in anything or in anyone but Jesus, if you live and you think as if your value is in anything but Jesus, you will ultimately lose your life. You can't cash in on the accumulation of life's good things and get eternal life. You will not inherit the kingdom. You will not have eternal life. You will instead be under the righteous, holy, and just wrath of God because you rejected him for the things of the world. You tried to exchange the temporal or the eternal, and you lost. But if instead you know that all you are is in Christ, that all your worth, all your joy, all your delight, all your love is in Christ, then and only then will you know what it's like to have abundant and eternal life. When you, by the power of the Spirit in you, come to the conclusion that there is nothing else worth Jesus, then you'll have true life. And when that happens, when that happens, then the love for Jesus, your love for Jesus, will outweigh your love for anything and everybody and anybody and everything else. You will know at the core of who you are, he's the pearl of great price. 
you will know at your very heart's center that he's the treasure in the field, the one that's worth selling everything for to own. And that sounds great, doesn't it? That sounds wonderful. That sounds inspiring. But here's the problem. We don't always feel this love for Jesus, do we? None of us always feels that way. In fact, some of us, for some of us, that that kind of love for Jesus, that give everything, sell everything, give up everything in every relationship for Jesus, that kind of love, that's really rare. Maybe we've felt that once or twice. Some of you have never known that kind of love for Jesus. Never. Maybe Jesus has been an idea to you. Maybe he's been a tradition for you. Maybe you, you pay homage to them, to him. But in your, in your heart of hearts, you, you know you don't love him the way you love your kids. You know you don't love him the way you love your wife or your friends or your parents. If your love for Jesus is faint, or if it's just non-existent, can I tell you why that is? The reason why you have a faint or non-existent love for Jesus Christ is that you underestimate your own sin. In the Gospel according to Luke, there's, there's this story of Jesus being invited for a meal at the house of a Pharisee. If you want to read it, if you want to flip there, it's in Luke chapter 7. It begins in, in verse 36. If you want to read it at home later on, write down Luke seven thirty-six and following. Well, Jesus is in the house of this Pharisee, and he's, he's reclining at, at one of these Middle Eastern tables where you lay down to eat, and a, and a prostitute comes in. She finds out that, that Jesus is, is there in the house. Luke calls her a sinner from the city. We know what he means. She finds out that he's there at the house, and, and she comes in, and she's weeping and weeping and weeping and weeping, and her tears are so great that her hair is soaking wet. And so with her tear-soaked hair, she washes Jesus' feet. And she kisses his feet. And then, and then she anoints his feet with oil. Well, the host, a Pharisee, you can imagine, he's, he's appalled that this is happening in his house. What are people going to think when they see that this lady came into my house? And he murmurs to himself, if this guy were really a prophet he would know what kind of woman is touching him. And then Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. If you're there with me in Luke 7, look at verse 41. Jesus is going to offer a parable to Simon, the Pharisee, to address this issue. Verse 41, Jesus says to Simon, a certain moneylender had two debtors, One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then he, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, he's facing the woman, speaking to Simon, 
Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. There it is. He who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Friend, if your love for Jesus is little, it's because you have little to be forgiven of in your mind. You believe you have little to be forgiven of. If you find that your love for Jesus is cold or it's lacking, if you're horrified at the idea of loyalty to Jesus at the disappointment of your family, it's because you believe you have little to be forgiven of. As if only a pint of Christ's blood was somehow all that was needed to cover your sin. As if you're basically a good person but have a few character flaws that need to be adjusted a little. That's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. Friend, listen, all of who Christ is was required to cover your sin. All of him. Your sin is so great, your offense to God is so great at the core of who we are, we're so utterly deserving of God's wrath that Jesus Christ had to give all of who he is. For you, every drop of blood, every ounce of his flesh, he had to give everything to atone for your sin. Your sin really is that great. But his love for you is greater. Amen? He who is forgiven loves little. He who is forgiven little knows very little of Christ's love for him. But the one who is forgiven much, she knows that much more of Christ's love for her. And so she responds to Christ's love with love. Listen, when you know, when you know the majesty of Jesus, when you realize that he is God, you respond in worship. You respond in admiration. When you know the sacrifice of Jesus, you might respond in pity, you might respond in awe. When you know the wisdom of Jesus, you respond by listening to him. But when you know the forgiveness of Jesus, when you truly know the forgiveness of Jesus, you respond to him in love. You want to love Jesus more? If you want to know the joy of following him 
Come to grips with what he's done for you, with how he has showed his love for you. Come to grips with the horribleness of your sin and know his self-sacrificing love for you. You can't pay him back. You can't pay him back. You shouldn't try to pay him back. That's not the point of this. But you can respond to him in a way that is fitting. You can respond to Jesus Christ in a way that is worthy of Christ's sacrifice for you. You can love him. And that's what he's asking us to do. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we know every one of us in here does not love Jesus Christ the way that he loves us. We know it. 